As I mentioned last Sunday, uh, both chapters 4 and chapter 5 can kind of uh, be divided in similar headings. Uh, you've got the wonder at the throne in both chapters, and then you have someone worthy there at the throne in both chapters, and then you also have some worship in both chapters. Uh, and so basically they all revolve around someone who is worthy. Chapter 4, we found the one sitting on the throne, referring to God the Father as the one who is worthy. And then here in chapter 5, we're going to meet the Lamb of God, who is also worthy. So again, chapter 4, uh, the wonder is found in the glory of heaven, and the one who is sitting on the throne, he also is the one who is worthy to receive the worship of all the host of heaven. And of course, uh, we were introduced to two, some consider them to be songs of praise and worship by the four living ones, uh, these four living beasts that reflect the very character of God's creation, uh, as well as the 24 elders, which represent the redeemed of the Lord in some manner or fashion. Well, here in chapter 5, the wonder is focused again there in verse 1. We saw this last Sunday. It's focused on a book or a scroll. Uh, we're not talking about the codex style of manuscript, but rather the scroll or the roll kind of manuscript. And this scroll had written within it and on the backside words. And so that was an un uncommon thing, an unusual thing for books that were written in that day. Uh, but it indicates that whatever is there is both full and final. Nothing could be added to it, and certainly nothing can be taken away from it. And this hand, or this scroll in verse 1 was placed in, or was in the hand, the right hand, the right hand of authority and power of him that sat on the throne. And of course, that is referring to God the Father. If you remember, as we ended our lesson last time, we discovered that, um, according to verse 3 of this chapter, there was no man, and probably a better translation is no one, uh, not any creature, in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, who is able to open that scroll, neither to look thereon. And that is what caused John to weep, to weep much, as it says there in verse 4. Uh, Ron suggested last week that in uh, John's visionary experience, uh, we really have no idea of how long he was weeping. <laughs> uh, it could have been for a long, long period of time in that visionary experience. Um, but that weeping was certainly meant to convey the desperate need that both he and we have in order for this book, this scroll, to be opened. It's something that we desperately needed to take place. It needed to be unsealed, opened, and ultimately read. And so, again, that weeping is something that we can kind of enter in along with John, uh, stopping there and thinking, okay, who is worthy to open this scroll, this uh, what we might call the scroll of destiny that's going to basically finish what God has started uh, from the beginning of creation? Well, one thing we do know is that the weeping of John does not last forever, does it? And that's what we find next in verses 5 through 14. So uh, we're going to only cover a few verses, but let's read verses 5 through the end of this chapter of Revelation 5. So here we have John weeping. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, John writes, and, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, the four living ones, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came 
and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts living ones said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Again, throne room of heaven. Remarkable scene, remarkable words, and really the intent is for us to enter into that same worship as we experience the wonder of the one who is worthy there in the, in the heavenly realm. Now, we go back to chapter 5, verse 5. As John continues to weep, Again, not sure how long that lasted. We're told that one of the elders said unto him, Stop your weeping. <laughs> uh, very abrupt. Just, you don't need to do this anymore. And the reason given is also found there in verse 5. It's because after a search, and again, we're not told how long or how, this, how extensive this search was. Obviously, it was universal. Um, but in the process of the search, we're not told anything about. But after a great search, finally someone was found who, verse 5, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And that was cause for John to stop crying, to stop weeping, because there's someone worthy. Now, in the underlying Greek manuscripts of this verse, the phrase, or really the verb, hath prevailed, uh, that is in the perfect tense, which means it's something that is, it happened in time and it is ongoing in the future. That is, it continues on. The effects continue on. It's actually found before the description of the one who prevails. And a lot of times in the Greek, when something is emphasized, it is placed first. And that's the case here. It's the prevailing of this one who does prevail that is really the point, that is really the emphasis. So there's a lot of emphasis put on this prevailing by the one who's described here in verses 5 and 6. And so that's why the elder that speaks to John wants him to first experience the great comfort of this truth, the great comfort of this truth, that someone was found, right? That someone was finally found who could unseal and open that scroll. And I mentioned that, that prevailing, that verb to prevail, is uh, emphatic in this verse. But the word translated prevail is something that refers to a kind of victory, uh, something that has overcome, if you will. It's actually the same exact word translated that we've already seen in chapters 2 and 3 
which is translated overcome. Uh, if you remember, in every single one of those letters to the seven churches, what happens at the very end of those letters? The Lord says to the one who overcomes this challenge, I will give him a promise, uh, give him some kind of blessing. And so that word overcome could also be translated prevail. It's the exact same word, the exact same concept. But implied in both of those settings, whether it's here in Revelation 5 or even in the church's letters, implied is that there had to be some kind of challenge or struggle that had to be overcome. Uh, it, it's not just something that, that came um, automatically for the churches or even came automatically for the one who does, does prevail. You have to overcome something. Now, we're not told yet what had to be overcome, but we're still just told that this one did prevail, that this one did overcome in order to unseal and open the throne. So there was some struggle, there was some challenge that had to be overcome, and it was by this person, by this one who overcame in order to open the seal. This is the truth that was meant to bring great comfort to John. Basically, that there's hope. There's hope for you, John. I mean, remember, he's there on the island of Patmos, right? He's there on the island of Patmos, probably wondering, you know, what's going to happen in his life, what's going to happen to the churches that he had overseen, what's going to happen with the rest of the, the world, what's going to happen in the future. I mean, he was the last remaining apostle, and now he is there stranded in exile on the island of Patmos. He's wondering, what next, Lord? And here it is, the hope. The one who has prevailed is there. He's been found, and he is ready to open the final chapters of the book of history. So there was hope. Now, this hope is not just for the contents of the scroll to be revealed, but also to be fulfilled. That leads us then to the great character of the one who prevailed. And, and really, most of verse 5 um, and verse 6 describes for us who is the one who overcame something in order to open the seals and open the scroll. So we have the great character. That's point number two there. And the character that we find in this verse is full of majesty and full of might. It's something that you would expect in order to obtain victory over something. I mean, when you think about even the, the battles that take place overseas right now, I mean, you think about the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, you know, and, and you think, well, the, the one that has the, the most might, the most power, uh, you know, the, the most money to buy bombs and equipment and bullets, they're the ones that are going to probably most likely win, right? I mean, that's the, the consideration here. And so when we find out the character of the one who prevailed, he has the character of one that you'd think would prevail and have victory. And so the elder first tells John there in verse 5, Behold, that is, look. Uh, the picture is almost like the elder is pointing towards something in the center of the throne for John to look at. You know, if, if you've ever seen something interesting in the sky, maybe there's a particular bird that is flying by and it's beautiful, and, and or maybe there's just a, you know, a, a rainbow that you're driving by and, and you see it, but no one else in your car sees it, and you say, look, look over there. Look at that rainbow. Look at that bird. Look at that scene. Look at that beauty over there. And that's kind of the image here. I'm not sure if the elder pointed, but he says, look, behold, John. Because he was enthralled with all the wonder taking place at the throne room, but there was something even more wondrous that he wanted to get his attention with. So as he points, 
he describes the character of this one who is able to open the scroll. And he uses this phrase, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is the one who prevailed. This is the one who is found, who is able to prevail in order to open the book and read the scroll. Now in that phrase, there are actually two messianic titles that are rooted in the Old Testament. Two titles that are found in the Old Testament that point to the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, the coming uh, anointed one. Of course, we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first title is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now these are not word-for-word titles that we find in the Old Testament, but they are words that describe something that we find in the Old Testament. And so here, when we talk about the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Um, the elder is pointing back to Genesis chapter 49. So we need to go back in our Bibles as well to learn a little bit more about what this title means. So keep your finger here in Revelation 5. Go back to Genesis 49 with me. And in Genesis 49, the elder is pointing back to Jacob's blessing of Judah, his fourth son in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Of course, we have Jacob and all of his sons and all of his family in Egypt at this point, right? And he is nearing the end of his life, and he's going to offer blessings to his sons. And he starts with the eldest, and he goes all the way down to the youngest. But there's some special blessing that he reserves for his fourth son. And so I want to read Genesis 49, 8 through 12, because this is Jacob's, Israel's blessing of Judah just before he died. He says, Judah, thou art he whom thine brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal upon the vine and his ass's colt under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Now, as we read through those verses, you think, there's a lot of stuff I have no idea (laughs) what it means. Uh, There's a lot to this blessing. And uh, from God's standpoint, He is inspiring Jacob to actually give uh, prophecies of blessing. So these aren't just, you know, blessings that I might say to my son, you know, I pray that the Lord will bless you as I pray, and I I ask God to, you you know, help his career to take off and all of these things. No, these are actually inspired blessings that God uses to actually bring forth the prophecy about these individuals and their families. Now, we're not going to take apart all of this. That we can reserve for another time. But we're going to look at just the verses that apply to this title that the elder gives to this one who is standing there at the throne. He's saying, look, look, look who this is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you look at verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. And so that's where the concept of the lion comes from. And if you think of a lion, a lion is someone who has great, great might. Great, great strength. Now, here he describes him as a lion's well. So a young lion who has the strength and the health of a young lion who is going out to 
get the prey. But after he gets the prey, he goes, he goes on and says, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. In other words, he's gotten the prey. So he's a powerful enough lion that he's able to seize whatever prey he wants. And then he goes up. And then as he ages, he stoops down. He rests and couches as a lion, as an old lion. And who shall rouse him? So basically, a lion from whatever point in his life, whether he's young or old, he's strong, he's mighty. You think of the young lion and the youth and the exuberance and the power of a young lion, but also the skill and ability and experience of an old lion. And he says, Judah, you are going to be a lion. <laughs> Your whole, whole tribe is going to be a lion. So there's great might here in this verse, in this prophecy of blessing for Jacob and his family. Uh, but then if you look at verse 10, we also see the great majesty of Judah as a tribe that's described. He says, the scepter, and of course the scepter is a symbol of ruling, of, of royalty, of majesty. Uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. So there's going to be a, a, a special role in Israel to play for the tribe of Jacob. And of course, we know that that's fulfilled later on because... The king, the prominent king, the most prominent king of Israel is King David. And David comes from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. So here we have this, this majesty fulfilled. But then it's added this, until Shiloh come. Until Shiloh come. That phrase can actually be translated in different ways. Um, another translation is, until he comes to whom it belongs. Shiloh is not a place. Shiloh is referring to a person, and that's probably the best translation there, even though there might be some other ways of looking at it. Um, but what Jacob is prophesying in this blessing to his son, his fourth son Judah, is that Judah will possess the greatest might and the greatest majesty among all his brethren until this person comes finally to whom that majesty and that might belongs. And so it's referring to someone who will one day possess all of Judah's might and all of Judah's majesty in his own person. And so this is sort of what the elder has in mind as he's pointing to this one that he wants John to see. And he says, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the one that possesses all the might and all the majesty that Jacob had prophesied for his son all those years in advance. It wasn't about Jacob. It wasn't about Judah. It wasn't about his family. It wasn't even about David or all of his sons. It was about his final son, that one son that would rule over all kingdoms of the earth one day. And so here, the one who is able to obtain the victory Necessary to open the scroll in this mighty and majestic is this mighty and majestic Messiah from the tribe of Judah. So that's where he gets it from. And he's speaking of the might and the majesty of this one who prevailed and who now is able to open up this scroll. He's able to do it. Judah couldn't do it. John couldn't do it. Remember, even the strong angel earlier in this in this chapter, he couldn't do it. Only someone who had the might and majesty as the line of the tribe of Judah could. And that's why he is able to open the scroll. Of course, we know, as John would have known, that that refers to Jesus, right? Um, but we'll get to that. But there is the other title. And that title is, he's also the root of David. The root of David. This, this title is also messianic. It is also rooted in the Old Testament. And this is found in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 
So why don't we head back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 now. Uh, because we have, again, not the exact title given, but certainly the illusion of this title and some of the, the descriptions of them. Now, now, before we get to where you get this title from in Isaiah 11, uh, I first want to look at verse 1 of Isaiah 11. Because a special promise is made to the, you know, the, the people of Israel, those that are faithful to the Lord, waiting uh, in order for you know, rescue and redemption from their captivity. There's a special promise that there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of who? Of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? Jesse is David's, King David's father. So we're, we're kind of taking a step back, all right? So we're having here the rod of Jesse, the rod out of the stem of Jesse. So there's going to come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, in, in my Bible and probably most of your Bibles, that word branch is capitalized because that is also a messianic title that we find in other places of the Old Testament as well. Jesus is that branch. So in this verse and in others like it, the future Messiah is called the branch. He is the rod out of the stem of Jesse. And so this, this Messiah, this anointed one, was expected that he would be a future son or grandson of Jesse, you know, obviously great, 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 great grandson of Jesse. But if he's a grandson of Jesse, he's also going to be a grandson here of David. So we have Jesse and David, even though the, the different names get the concept of the same. But this, this Messiah will rule over a kingdom like the world has never seen. And that's really what we find in verses 4 through 9. Um, you know, we're familiar with these verses. It's something that we anticipate. It's something that we hope for. Uh, it says, with righteousness shall he judge the earth. Who is he? The branch, the, the rod that comes out of the stem of Jesse. He shall, uh, with righteousness, judge the poor, reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with a lamb and the leopard shall lie down with a kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, a very poisonous snake of that day. The weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, another, another poisonous snake. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so that is the reign and the rule of the branch. The branch that is going to come from Jesse and from David and from, you know, down the line. But then we come to verse 10. And we have a related promise that is made because in that day, in that day, referring to, uh, of course, all of what we just read, this day of the Lord, in that day there shall be a, what? A root of Jesse. A root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. And to it, to this ensign, even to this root, shall the Gentiles seek. That's referring to the gospel. People coming to know this Messiah for themselves, and not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And his rest shall be glorious. Now, if you look at verse 1 and you look at verse 10 of the same chapter, 
the root of a tree is not the same thing as a rod or the branch of a tree, right? The root of a tree always comes before a rod. But here, the rod out of the stem of Jesse is equivalent to, and is really at the same time, the root of Jesse. So it comes both before and after Jesse. Now, obviously the elder doesn't have in mind Jesse. He has in mind David. So that's where the title is a little different, but the same principle applies, and this is where he would have gotten the idea of both the root and the rod. So the rod out of the stem of Jesse in verse 1 is at the same time the root of Jesse there in verse 10, and so it comes both before and after Jesse. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? If someone is coming after Jesse and yet is before Jesse, it talks not only about the humanity of someone, but also the deity of someone. And that is exactly what the elder is trying to point out to John. He goes, this one that is qualified to open up that scroll is so unique among the children of men in that, yes, he does belong to a family. Yes, he does belong to Jesse's line. And, of course, here the elder says, even to David's line. But he was before Jesse. And if he's before Jesse, that means he's before David as well, which means that he existed before that. So what does Isaiah 11 tell us about this particular title of the one who is able to open the scroll? It tells us about the excellence of a special person who will be excellent because of his connection with Jesse, and not just his connection with Jesse, but his connection with David, the king, the prominent king, the most prominent king of the children of Israel. But Isaiah 11 also tells us about the existence of that special person who will be the very root of this royal family in Judah. Not just an existence that started when he was born, but an existence that was eternal, that came before even time itself. So the title in Revelation is used to describe Jesus as the root of David, who is the most significant son of Jesse. So if we head back to Revelation chapter 5, we kind of have an idea now as to why these titles are used by the elder to refer to this one who's able to open the scroll. He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is also the, uh, the root of David. He is the one who is able to prevail to open the scroll. Again, because of his great might and majesty, but also because of his great excellence and existence. This is the person the elder describes to John as he points him out and says, look, he is able to open the scroll. He's qualified to open the scroll. But then there's a twist in this narrative as we come back to, to verse 6 even. Because what John hears about the one who hath prevailed is actually a little different, okay, a lot different than what he sees. What does he hear? Behold the lion. But what does he see? Verse 6. John says, I beheld. Look, the elder says. And so John looks. And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, the four living ones, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. He hears about a lion, but now he sees what? A lamb. And this lamb... He sees as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So again, John hears about a mighty lion, but John sees ultimately a meek lamb, even a lamb as it had been slain. Now this is something that you kind of need to be aware of in the book of Revelation. There are times when what John hears and sees correspond with each other. You know, we, we saw that in chapter 1, where uh, there was that voice that sounded like a trumpet behind him, right? A powerful, clear-sounding voice. And when he went to look, it was the image of that powerful Lord that, you know, that had the, the white hair and the, you know, the shining feet and really all glorious from top to bottom. And so what he heard and what he saw corresponded with each other. Here and in other places, what he hears and what he sees may actually be different. Um, but it's not a contradiction. We must not see it as a contradiction. Instead, it complements and clarifies what John hears. So it's to draw our attention as well. If there's a difference, there's a reason why there's a difference. It's to get our attention. Have you noticed how many ways that the book of Revelation uses to get our attention? <laughs> One is the elder saying, look. Okay, so we look. Um, you know, we're going to find trumpets. You know, trumpets were often used to get people's attention. Uh, this is another way to get our attention of what is being said and what is being seen. What you hear and what you see is a little different, but there's a reason for it. And so as John beholds not a lion in image, he beholds the lamb, we actually learn even more about the great capability of the one who is both lion and lamb. He is the lion-like lamb, if you will. He is the one who can open the book. So as John looks, he finally sees the one who the elder is describing. And he says here in verse 6 that he is in the midst of the throne. You know, we kind of mentioned last Sunday, well, why didn't John see him before? <laughs> um, we're not totally sure. Uh, you know, was he, you know, was just this appearance made at that point? Um, quite possibly. Uh, I think there is another clue, perhaps, why he didn't see him before. In Revelation 14, verse 4, it actually sounds like this lamb moves around. Uh, in fact, it talks about those who follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. And so it could be that the lamb was just not there at the time when he was beholding all of the other wonders there in heaven. And at this point, at this stage, he shows up. All right. Again, we're not uh, in tune with every aspect of this vision. Um, but that might be one suggestion as to why he didn't see him before. But the fact that he's in the midst of the throne adds a whole other dimension to the throne that is found in these chapters. Uh, the throne seems to be more than just a seat, doesn't it? Uh, we mentioned this before. It's, it's not just a seat. There's, there's more that takes place on this throne. So this entire area is big enough to accommodate both the Father and the Lamb and can be described as the throne. Of course, this lamb that John sees is another image of who? Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Our Savior. And this also points back to the Old Testament and to the New. We're not going to take the time to look at all of the references in the Old Testament that deal with the lambs. Uh, but one of the primary references of lambs is to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that was first sacrificed when God was going to rescue his people from, from Egypt, and especially from that last plague in which all of the eldest in, the, in Egypt who did not have you know, the blood on the doorposts would actually be killed. Uh, but also, this is a New Testament reference. In John chapter 1, verse 29, 
uh, which we looked at when we first started the, the Gospel of John. John the Baptist saw Jesus, right? And kind of like the elder who pointed to him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So as the Lamb of God, this Lamb would be the final Lamb that is so often found in the Old Testament. There's no more need for any other Lamb than this. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And of course, this is how John sees this Lamb. And this is what makes this Lamb capable to open the scroll. Again, not only does he have the power and authority and majesty to open the scroll, he also has other qualifications that we see here as well. So uh, just a, a couple of those. The purity of the lamb is expressed in the kind of lamb that he was. Uh, the Greek word that is underlying lamb in this verse is arnion, which speaks to a little lamb, a little lamb, a young lamb. You know, when someone was to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in the Old Testament, they had to bring a lamb that was relatively young. It couldn't have been so old. It, it had to be uh, without blemish, without spot. And so it would have been this kind of lamb, a, a little lamb, an arnion. And that would point to his innocence and purity, which was, the, which was part of the qualification to be sacrificed. And so, so, of course, Jesus as the Lamb of God is wholly pure. He was tempted, like in all points as we are, yet without sin. So from birth to death, to resurrection to ascension, from eternity to eternity, Jesus is 100% pure and perfect. And so we see from that that there's only one person who could ever qualify to open up the scroll, and that is the pure Lord Jesus. We also see the purpose of the Lamb expressed in this verse, and that was, He is the Lamb as it had been slain. So he looks like he had been killed. That is, he bears the marks of slaughter. Now, back in those days when they would kill a lamb, one of the first things that they would do is they would take a knife and they would slit the throat of that lamb so that that lamb would bleed out and die. And that's probably the image here. He bears the marks of being slaughtered like a lamb. Now, this also has some references in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, of course, deals with the entire suffering servant, right? Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who is also described as a lamb. But he's described as a lamb who had not yet been slain. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. So in Isaiah 53, here's the servant being brought to the slaughter, and now here in Revelation chapter 5, we have the lamb who had already been slaughtered. And so before we have the prophecy of the death of this lamb, and here in Revelation 5, we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, a prophecy reveals God's purpose, doesn't it? The prophecy of this lamb who's to be slain shows that this was God's intention for the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, from the very beginning. This is something that the Jews still stumble over. They still think of the majesty and might of the line of the tribe of Judah, even if he is the root of David, the root of even Jesse. But they stumble at this idea that he's a lamb as well who was to be slaughtered and in fact was slaughtered even by their own hands. So here in verse 6, his purpose was fulfilled. He was slain, and the marks of his death were still with him. Now, doesn't that remind us of when Jesus rose from the dead? 
in, uh, in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 20, Jesus actually showed to his disciples, and especially doubting Thomas, what? The marks of his slaughter, right? He showed him his hands, the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet, the, the wound in his side. And he just says, Thomas, go ahead and put your hand in there <laughs> and, and be believing. Don't doubt, be believing. And so again, this is something that John sees. His own, and John would have understood this. When he sees this lamb that bears the mark of slaughter, his mind probably was back there too. There's my Jesus with the marks of his slaughter. And he's standing there at the throne. But even though the lamb had been slain, John also tells us that he stood. Isn't that wonderful? In other words, he's not dead. He has the marks of being slain, but he's standing at the same time, which tells us of the position of the lamb. The position of the lamb is expressed here as well. The lamb that was dead is now alive, and he alone belongs not just at God's throne, but in God's throne. Later on in Revelation, in, check, in fact, in chapter 22, verse 1, and chapter 22, verse 3, this throne is described as the throne of God and of the Lamb. Because obviously we know this Lamb is God, because he's the root of Jesse, he's the root of David, he has that eternal self-existence, which is part of the attributes of God himself, so it is the throne of God, the Father, and certainly of the Lamb, who we could say is God the Son. But he's standing there, even though he had been slain. Uh, also there in verse 6, we see the power of the lamb expressed. He is as one having seven horns. Having seven horns. Now, this is the first time in Revelation where horns are mentioned. Uh, nine times you will find that reference in Revelation. A uh, horn is a common symbol in the Bible for power and for strength. And so, again, we have a lamb, which is usually considered to be kind of a, you know, a meek, quiet, gentle animal. But this lamb still has some of those characteristics of a lion, with the strength and the might and the power with these seven horns. And, of course, seven has the, is sort of a number dealing with completion. Um, you know, we sometimes hear it's the perfect number. Uh, well, there's certainly places in Revelation where you see that, that number seven applied to somebody or something that's not perfect. Um, so it is another reference of completion as well. But since this lamb has seven of them, it points to the fullness of his power. And so what we find is that this lion-like lamb achieved the victory required to open the scroll through his death. So what was it? that he had to prevail over in order to open the scroll, in order to finish the course of history. He had to prevail over death. He had to prevail over the, the curse of death to men and the curse of death in this world. He had to prevail over that, and he does. And of course, this theme of victory not over death, but victory through death, is actually something you find throughout Revelation. It's not just a theme here for the Lamb. It's also a theme for God's people in Revelation as well. Death is not considered a defeat for God and God's people in Revelation. Death is considered victory. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 11, it talks about the 144,000, you know, after going through this time and period of, of tribulation. And it says that they overcame him, they overcame the beast. That's the same word. They prevailed over but how do they prevail over 
him. They uh, overcame him by the blood of the lamb. So it's not first and foremost their death. It's the death of this lamb, of Christ. But also by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. In other words, they achieved victory through death. And we see martyrdom constantly throughout the book of Revelation, which is, you know, martyr is the Greek word for witness. And of course, the Lord Jesus is the first and faithful witness, first and faithful martyr. But he prevails to open the scroll because he died and rose again. But there is another feature that John sees on this lamb, and that is something that the perception of the lamb is expressed by. The perception of the lamb. Here we go. Um, he has not only seven horns, but seven what? Seven eyes. And this is one of those symbols in Revelation that are spelled out for us, right? What do these seven eyes represent? Which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, we've seen that phrase before, the seven spirits of God. We've seen it actually three times already. This is the fourth time that we find these seven spirits uh, we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5. And in all places, including here, they refer to the Holy Spirit. They refer to the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold nature. And so even though you can't really you know, take apart a spirit, it describes the sevenfold character of the Holy Spirit that we've considered already. Um, the sevenfold nature is described for us in Isaiah 11 as well. Uh, remember when we talked about the, uh, the root of, from the stem of Jesse. And just before it talks about his rule and his reign over everything, where the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, it talks about his own nature. And he says, and it, and it says that the spirit will rest upon him. And so this Holy Spirit is the spirit of rest, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so that's where you get the idea of the sevenfold spirit of God, referring to the nature and characteristics of the Holy Spirit. But this same spirit, who is seen in the eyes of the Lamb, is also, as I mentioned before, the same spirit who is seen in chapter 4, verse 5, who is seen in the seven lamps of fire, burning before the throne of God. So again, you know, a spirit doesn't have a body, and, and especially the Holy Spirit is able to be everywhere at all times. So he's before the throne in the image of these torches, and he's also on Jesus in the image of these eyes. It's the same spirit also who, according to this verse, verse 6, is sent forth into all the earth. So where is the spirit? Is he before the throne? Is he on the sun? And is he in the earth? Yes, <laughs> Because he can all be all places at all times because he's the Holy Spirit. He's God. He's omnipresent. This is another example of the kind of unity that exists in the Trinity. In that the presence and perception of the one is also the presence and perception of the other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit united in this, in this way. But they don't take away from each other's distinct identity and role. So it is this lamb that is qualified to deal with the scroll sitting there in God's hand. And all of these qualities that we just looked at permit him to do what happens next, and we'll end with this there in verse 7, which reveals to us the great conduct of the lamb. What does the lamb do? Finally, being qualified to do this, it says he came and what? 
took the book. It's such an abrupt way of putting it. It's not that God the Father you know, had to reach out the, the book to him and say, go ahead and urge him to take it. It's almost like it's almost there's some audacity, at least if it were a creature coming up there. The lamb just comes up and takes the book. Because it's his right to. It's his book as well. So again, picture this. As the lamb stands in the midst of the throne, in some way he's able to move closer to the one who's sitting on the throne. Again, it's not just a, a seat, it's an area. And he just takes the scroll out of his hand. But once he takes it, he keeps it. In fact, to take here is in the perfect tense. So once he took it, he kept it, and it be belongs to him to finish it. Now, when we talk about these images, we're not told how the lamb takes the book. Uh, was it with the mouth of a lamb? Or was it with the hand of a man? We're not told. We really can't know. Uh, a lot of the details of the visions in Revelation are not entirely clear to us. Because not only does Jesus show John just what he wants him to see, John also only tells us what Jesus wants us to know. And so we must not you know, speculate about how he took it. We just know that he took it because he had the right to do so. And so that's the most important thing that Jesus wants us to know, and that is that he is the only one worthy to unseal, open, even behold, and read the contents of this scroll in order to finish what he started in this world. But guess what? As soon as the Lamb is revealed to be worthy here in chapter 5, even as God is revealed to be worthy in chapter 4, what happens next? There's more worship here at the wonder of the throne. More worship before the throne, and that is what we will consider next time. So again, weep not, for there is one found who is worthy to open the book. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you again for this amazing vision that you gave John, and thank you that in some way we're able to enter into that as well by the words and the pictures that are painted before us by these words. And I pray, Father, that we will be impressed, even as John was impressed, by this one who is not only mighty and majestic as the lamb or as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the, the root of David, but also is the lamb of God who is qualified not only to redeem us from our sin, but then, Lord, to finish the work that he started in this world. And so, Father, I pray that when we see things going on in this world that we wonder about, perhaps like John wondered about as he is there in exile in Patmos, and we think, well, Lord, what's next? Help us to remember that there is one. There is one who hath prevailed to open the book. And as we go through this entire book of Revelation, we're going to see him do that very thing to bring about what you have already purposed from eternity past to occur in that you will finish what you started, you will make all that is wrong right, you will bring to completion even not just the creation, but Lord, even your people. And so, Father, I pray that we will remain hopeful, even as you John, gave John this hope, so that when we weep in the circumstances that we face, 
we can weep not. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.